All right. Welcome to Sunday. Let me get my headphones on. How is everybody doing this weekend? Nice long weekend. Ah, let me get settled here. Give everybody a few minutes to come in. Adjust my little wires here. Hang on, I'm making wire adjustments. Wires everywhere right now. Okay. Good to see everybody. Happy Sunday. A nice last weekend of the summer. You hate when your wires end up like wrapped around. Okay. Anyway, happy Sunday, everybody. Big Sunday for us here at California Haunts Radio. Alright, let me double check my messages real quick. Okay. We're good. Okay, happy Sunday for everybody. And my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And uh, welcome to California Haunts Radio. Everybody enjoy. Is everybody enjoying their last weekend of the summer? Yeah, their last long holiday weekend of summer. I am too. Kind of cleaning house and doing things I don't normally get to do. And uh, yeah. Anyway, today's a special day. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. You can find us at CaliforniaHaunts.org or California Haunts Radio. We are also 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you have a paranormal need or you think you have a paranormal need, you can give us, you know, contact us like at, at uh, CaliforniaHaunts.org, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, California Haunts on Facebook. Find me, Charlotte Cosa, on Facebook, and then we'll get back to you right away, and we can get somebody out there because we've got people in almost every county of California, every county of California. Plus, we've got Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii as well covered for you, okay? So anyway, welcome today. Um, Saturday, next Saturday, I'm going to be teaching a psychic development class. Uh, it's a second level psychic development class. Let me make some space here, turn some stuff around, okay? It's a second level psychic development class, uh, meaning you've taken my first level. And what that does is it kind of hones in on what abilities you might have, whether it's Hello, D.A. Roberts. Good evening. It's good to see you. You know, it hones in on your abilities, whether you have, you know, your, your clairsentient, clairaudient, or, or whatever, because, you know, not all psychics can do everything. You know, some psychics can, can do certain things. So that's what the next class I'm going to be teaching Saturday at 5 p.m. Pacific teaches you. You know, we'll do some exercises and, you know, some different exercises to see where your skills lie. And then take it from there, okay? So if you're interested in finding out what types of psychic skills you, you have, this is the class for you. So check out the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup page. Sign up over there for, for the meetup. There's no fee for signing up the meetup, okay? And you'll find the class listed on there. All right? Anyway, today is the last reading day for our Lizzie Borden book. It's been 20 days. We've, we've read this 20 days, and that... I'm not going to say uh, 20 Sundays because a couple of those days were during the week when we had, you know, um, technical problems with guests and whatnot. But uh, this is the last day of reading. It's probably, I'm hoping it's not an hour and a half, that when I open up the the, uh, the book app, it tells me it's an hour and a half. So, I, you know, hopefully it won't be. But, um, you know, we, when we last left Lizzie, she is out of jail now. It's a few years past that. She's bought a new home with her sister, Emma, and uh, they, at some point, 
went their separate ways. So Emma's living away from her. And so she's pretty much living alone. But she's having trouble he keeping friends. And she's having trouble making friends. Because like every court case, no matter where she goes, you know, no matter what happens after a court case, you're still connected with whatever you, whatever you went to court for, whether you were guilty or not. And it looks like the Fall River kind of suspected that Lizzie had done it, and she, and she had gotten off because of her wealth. Okay, so the upper crust that Lizzie really wanted to be a part of is shunning her. So Lizzie's trying to create her own upper crust stuff. Okay, so this is where we're at, and. Um, so uh, that's how we're going to finish off, I guess. I don't know how it ends. I haven't read the whole book yet. I want to read it with. I'm going to finish it off with you guys. So you know that's where we're at. Though is, is Lizzie's having issues living on her own at this point in Fall River, and she did buy a beautiful house and then did a lot of renovations on it. But she's had problems with her neighbors, and you know this and that's gone on. And there's been some mysterious robberies in the neighborhood, and you know they're not. There's no finger. Finger. Tired. There's no finger pointing going on, but it does look kind of look like Lizzie has, does petty theft as well and, break, and breaks into people's houses and takes what she wants. So it's kind of interesting, you know, when you think about it in the long run. All right. So uh, we'll give people a couple more minutes to come on because I know we're on a full hour earlier than we usually are, but I want to get, you know, get in here early so you guys can get back to your barbecues or whatever it is you're doing. Maybe you're out camping and you're listening to me. I don't know, you know. So, uh, this is your chance. This is our chance to finish this book off. It's been a great book. I mean, we started out, you know, with her early life and went through the murders and then went through her trial, right? We went through all that and then we went through where she got out and that, which brings us up to now, you know, she finally sold her, she finally got out of the other house and now we've got this new house and she's making changes in this house and, you know, and, and trying to build her life out. But now she's getting older and all this and everything else is going on like everybody else gets old. I mean, we all get old. We all get older. I'm fighting it. But, you know, everybody has to age. And so Lizzie's starting to age as well. So let me get my tablet on here and we can start rolling. But it's good to see you all. I just I hope you're having a good last week in the summer. It's going to get really hot here in Sacramento. We're looking at at least 111 to 112 by Thursday here. And usually what it indicates, like in September like this, that's usually the last big heavy heat that we have. And then things start settling down and then we start getting into fall weather. And we go back into like spring where it's 80 degrees and it starts dribbling from there. So hopefully that's what it is because, boy, it's going to be hot this week. It's 105 today here, by the way. All right. Get my little tablet rolling here. Good to see you, DA. And if you do have anything to add to all this that I'm reading, I will try to answer questions and stuff during the read, but my focus is pretty much on the book. I don't have a producer here with me on Sundays, so it makes it kind of hard. Okay. So we're at chapter 36. Tells me I'm 93% through. So, okay. This is it. The last day for reading Lizzie Borton. Next week, we're going to start Anna Maria, Anna Maria Manalo's book on haunted antiques, okay, where people have picked up haunted antiques in stores and stuff. So we're going to start reading that book. In the meantime, here we go. Chapter 36, Reaping the Rewards. 
As the second decade of the 1900s began, Lizzie may have watched the rapid changes around her with increasing tension. The world she knew was gone. Automobiles were replacing the horse and carriage in increasing numbers. Women were in the workplace. The corset had been flung to the winds, and modern appliances were finding their way into the home, including dishwashers, gas ranges, and vacuum cleaners. President William E. Taft visited Fall River to commemorate its cotton centennial. As the city was enjoying the fruits of its cotton manufacturing labors, 10,000 mill stockholders, including Emma and Lizzie Borden, watched the money pour in. Andrew, who had owned stock in, in Troy Mills and others, would have appreciated seeing his fortunes grow. It was rumored that President Taft asked to be driven past the home of the city's living legend. If the story is true, did Lizzie see the nation's president peering up at her curtain windows? For Lizzie, the rewards she reaped and the realm of material goods and luxuries were great. When measured against the yardstick of friendships, family, and happiness, she fell tragically short. On the 20th anniversary of the murders, the Boston Herald ran a feature article entitled Lizzie Borden, 20 Years After the Tragedy. It labeled her a recluse as damned by public opinion and ostracized by former friends and enemies alike. It went on in the harshest of words, calling her an outcast, an Ishmael, a social pariah, shut off from the world as if she were behind prison bars, the silent, inexorable censure of her fellow men and women. Even Emma, in a rare interview in 1913, admitted, Queer? Yes, Lizzie is queer. Articles rehashing the Borden murders had run every year on the anniversary since 1892. Finally, in 1914, they stopped with the Fall River Globe. With the Fall River Globe, Lizzie's constant nemesis giving the story its last hurrah: friendships. By 1916, Lizzie's closest ties were to the employees who worked for her and their families. To these companions, she became Auntie Lizzie or Auntie Borden, creating a family of her own invention. She opened her heart and her purse strings, especially to the children, bestowing gifts of sunbonnet babies' dishware to the girls and gold rings to the boys. If there was some hidden symbolism dating back to the murders and the selection of gifts, it may have been subliminal. The sunbonnet babies de depict a tranquil world of tidy housekeeping each day relegated to a certain chore, with Sunday as a day of fun and fishing. Thursday showed the washing of the windows, an ironic twist. The gold rings were quite possibly the means of giving love over and over, as she had given one as a token of such to her father long ago. Her little Boston Terrier, Laddie, Laddie Miller Borden, was her constant companion. Mrs. Dr. Mrs. Dr. James Wardle Hartley and her daughter Grace became close friends with Lizzie. Little Grace frequented Maplecroft, attending small tea parties in the dining room and parlor and bringing much needed joy to Lizzie's lonely life. It was a friendship that endured for the last ten years of Lizzie's life, a life increasingly fraught with nervous spells and depression. Grace married Louis McHenry Howe and remained Lizzie's best friend until she was buried in the Boston plot. In 1919, Lizzie hired Ernest Alden Terry to serve as her chauffeur. His and his family's friendship would be one of lasting happiness for her. She became Auntie Borden to his children, Grace Lorraine and Alden, presenting them with her favorite gifts of sunbonnet baby dishes and other trinkets. Alden remembered being invited to Auntie Borden's for little tea parties. In 1922, Lizzie panicked. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 1922, Lizzie picnicked 
with the Terrys and Alden, along with her two domestic servants, Nellie and Florence, and, and an unidentified woman. Lizzie's Boston Terrier was in tow. Lizzie had her family, one consisting of employees, their offspring, and her beloved pets. Someone is in the house. On April 8, 1920, two homes within walking distance of Maplecroft were burglarized. The first home was that of Andrew H. Gardner on Rock Street, two blocks from Lizzie's door. Between 4 o'clock and 11 p.m., an intruder entered the Gardner home and took their time going through each room. The maid had the day off, and Mr. Gardner was absent, showing inside knowledge of the family's movements that day. Three costly watches, valuable silver plate, jewelry, and jewelry boxes were stolen. Oddly, they departed with, the most, with most of the cigars in the house, leaving three cigars in each of the two boxes and a single cigarette of a nearly full good-sized box. Again, the items taken were largely feminine in nature. The theft of tobacco may have been reminiscent of a pouch of fine-cut chewing tobacco found in the pocket of Andrew Borden as he lay murdered upon his sofa. Had the thief left behind a few cigars, unable to deprive the head of the house of all the tobacco? Just one block from Lizzie's house at 222 Belmont Avenue was the home of James Fitzgerald, a treasurer and father to three small children and his wife, Mabel. His home was also broken into during the evening, but from appearances, the thief had been frightened away by the approach of someone in the house. The homes were close in proximity. Both had windows jimmied and raised to show entrance. A wooden chisel, little used, was found in a vacant lot that would be purchased by Lizzie in July of that same year through her agent, Charles Cook. Known as the Baker Lot, it was found to hold a stolen pink leather jewel case tossed aside after its jewels had been removed and a chisel. The lot sat near Lizzie's home. The break-ins were never solved. After each series of break-ins, Lizzie hurriedly departed for Washington, D.C. A letter sent April 19th, only a week after the burglaries to her friend, Amanda P. Thielen, was very telling. My dear Amanda, you may be surprised I'm here. I was tired and nervous to so run away for a while. Nellie, Lizzie's maid, Ellen B. Miller, wrote, wrote me you called. I'm not sure, but may stay here a month. My love to you. L.A.B. Over the years, following the breakouts, <clears throat> following, <clears throat> I'm sorry, over the years, following fire breakouts in Lizzie's business properties, she once again ran to D.C., always staying at the Cochrane, which later became the Franklin Square Hotel, and writing Manda that her nerves were to blame for her escape. 1923 goes up in smoke. On Sunday, March 5th, 1923, fire once again broke out in the Andrew J. Borden building. It became apparent. The blaze began in the cellar beneath the modern shoe store, business leasing the site from Emma Borden. At 7 o'clock that evening, flames and smoke billowed from the first floor, the second and third floors sustaining smoke and water damage. While not as extensive, extensive as the Great Fire of 1916, it burned down a large portion of the businesses framed by South Main, Spring Pearl, and Columbia Streets. Among the lost buildings, several belonged to Emma and Lizzie Borden. The 1916 fire was called the worst inferno in the city's history. Reports of damages were close to a million and a half dollars. Once again, the Birchland buildings were hit, with no explanation for the devastating fire. The fire of 1923, which started in the basement of the modern shoe store, coincided with a lawsuit between the two sisters. Emma, 
with Lizzie's full knowledge, filed a petition on April 14, 1923, to hire her home agent, Jacob Donis, in effect separating herself from Charles Cook, her long-standing agent. Mr. Cook would remain in charge of Lizzie's properties. It is interesting Lizzie was made aware earlier that year that Emma had issued leases to the Modern Shoe Store, Incorporated, and others. Lizzie, in turn, had asked for an equal distribution of the property known as the A.J. Borden Block, wishing to hold the property in severalty, retaining it without a joint interest with any other person. The suit went back and forth, resulting in Emma selling her share of the building to her new agent, Jacob Dondas, and Lizzie retaining her interest until she died. Was it a coincidence that the fire started beneath the shoe store, to which Emma had just provided a lease, thus showing her independence in her dealings without her sister's involvement? Lizzie fled to D.C. citing nerves. The End of the Borden Saga Emma Borden, sometime in the 1920s, moved to Newmarket, New Hampshire, to live out her remaining days in peace. Residing on Main Street at the boarding house of Miss C. Connor in her early 70s, Emma was described as about 5 foot 4 and weighing about 130 to 138 pounds, usually attired in loose shifts of light colors. Her hair was quite gray and styled in such a way that it was way up on her head, held with hairpins above her oval face. While cordial and refined, she was said to possess a surprisingly harsh voice. Emma stayed true to her father's memory. Every Memorial Day I carry flowers to father's grave, she said, and Lizzie does not forget him. But she generally sends her tribute by a florist. No mention is made of flowers for Abby. Andrew Jennings, Lizzie's attorney and knight, died on October 19, 1923. The Fall River Daily News ran his obituary, and if Lizzie saw it, it may have caused her a moment of pain. Jennings was 74 and died at his summer home at Westport Harbor. On June 1, 1927, Lizzie Borden died at Maplecroft. Her heart had given out, and at 8.30 in the evening she was gone. She was 66 years old. Did the residents on the hill breathe a sigh of relief? Did many have a hard time accepting their town's legend was actually gone? The funeral was a strictly private affair. Mrs. Vida Turner was asked to sing the single hymn Lizzie had requested. It was My Ein Country, a song whose title was still carved on the mantelpiece in the upstairs bedroom. The singer was hastily called to Maplecroft on Saturday, June 4th. The undertaker let her in, ushered her into the dining room, although Lizzie's remains were in the parlor. She was told to sing, then ushered back out the door with orders not to tell anyone she had been there. Lizzie had friends. They were there in the spacious floral scented parlor of Maplecroft. Some were servants and their families. Some, some a loyal few, had stayed close to her through the end. She had asked to be buried at her father's feet, and that request was carried out. Lizzie's casket was carried from Maplecroft and conducted to Oak Grove Cemetery beneath the watchful eye of James Winward and Company, the same establishment she had requested to handle her father's funeral. Only after her death did the people of Fall River hear a different side to the woman they denigrated. Laughlin McFarland, the owner of a Fall River bookstore, let it be known that Lizzie had purchased hundreds of books over the years for the city's poor children. In her will, she left $30,000 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League. It is reminiscent of the verse from the song, Bless the Beasts and the Children. Bless the beasts and the children, for in this world they have no choice. They have no voice. It was to the helpless Lizzie reached out, and to the ones who could not hurt her or pass judgment, animals and children. 
Lizzie died without the one thing her money could not buy. I would give every cent I have in the world and big in the streets if it could only be proved while I live that I did not kill my father and stepmother. Sadly, it was rumored upon notice of her death. Many asked, did she confess? On the morning of June 10, 1927, Emma L. Borden died in her bed in Newmarket, New Hampshire, at the age of 76. The coroner's report stated chronic nephritis, with which she had been suffering for two years. Senility was listed as a contributing factor. Annie C. Connor, the woman with whom Emma had resided since her move to New Hampshire, was at her side, as was Orrin Gardner, Emma's cousin and constant friend. Her body was taken for her wake to the Gardner home, Riverbeat, in, in Towsett, only a half mile from Andrew Borden's upper farm. She had passed away only ten days after her sister, and thus, Andrew J. Borden's posterity was gone. Emma's funeral was attended by friends who had remained steadfastly by her side. Mary Ella Brigham and her husband George, Florence Bowen, daughter of Dr. Seabury Brown, Alice Buck, and many others were there. Emma's body was buried at her request at the feet of her mother, Sarah, only a few feet from Lizzie. Lizzie left behind a sizable fortune, 310513 Emma's total, 447099 $447, Neither sister left the other any bequests. Lizzie's 1924 Buick sedan was left to her chauffeur, Mr. Terry, and her 1923 Lincoln to her agent, Charles C. Cook. Other requests were left to her friends in both property, personal possessions, and cash. Epilogue No concrete evidence has ever surfaced pertaining to Lizzie's guilt and the double murders of August 4, 1892. It is a mystery. It's a mystery many love to contemplate. The question remains, what drove her to the actions for which she is held responsible in the court of public opinion? Was she a victim of an unstable mind, one subject to the whims of, and the, of emotions and outbursts of rage? Certainly her family and friends report a, report a woman who was queer, peculiar, and sullen. Others label her with the stronger emotions of anger, a temper when crossed, and a propensity to do anything to get what she wanted. Was Lizzie a sociopath? A look at traits pertaining to that title may be enlightening. One, money, one, can't hang on, huh? One, ma manipulative. I'm sorry, I can't say that. I don't know why. And cunning. They never recognize the rights of others and see their self serving behaviors as permissible. Two, grandiose sense of self feels entitled to certain things as their right. Three, pathological lying has no problem lying coolly and easily, and it is almost impossible for them to be truthful on, on a consistent basis. Four, lack of remorse, shame, or guilt. A deep-seated rage which is split off and repressed is at their core. The end always justifies the means, and they let nothing stand in their way. 5. Shallow emotions. When they show what seems to be warmth, joy, love, and compassion, it is more feigned than experienced and serves an ulterior motive. Outraged by insignificant, insignificant matters, yet remaining unmoved and cold by what, by what would upset a normal person. 6. Need for stimulation, living on the edge, promiscuity, promiscuity, stealing early signs of delinquency, verbal and physical outbursts are normal. 7. Callousness, lack of empathy, unable to, 
to, to empathize with the pain of their victims, having only contempt for others' feelings of distress and readily taking advantage of them. 8. Poor behavioral controls, impulsive nature. Rage, no concern for their impact on others. Impulsive behavior, stealing, acting out, no filter or breaking system. 9. The problem in making and keeping friends. 10. Irresponsibility and reliability. Not concerned about wrecking others' lives and dreams. Oblivious, obvious, okay, obvious or oblivious or indifference to the devastation they cause. 11. Criminal versatility Ch changes their image as needed to avoid persecution. Changes life story readily. In the 1830s, this disorder was called moral insanity. By 1900, it was changed to psychopathic personality. More recently, it has been termed antisocial personality disorder. In the DSM-3 and DSM-4, psychopaths fall under this definition when meeting certain criteria. They don't discriminate who it is they lie to or cheat. There is no distinction between friend, family, and sucker, according to Michael Cito, a psychologist at the Center for, at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, Canada. That Lizzie Borden exhibited these personality traits seems obvious when looking at her life. Setting fires, stealing, outbursts, pathological lying, and even murder for gain all fall within the realm of possibility. Her desire for acceptance into the hill's bosom found her doing charity work and offering her services in what was deemed unselfish and generous. Yet, when those avenues bore no fruit, she quit, rescinded her, her, rescinded her largest, and retaliated. The need for drama and stimulation can be seen in her actions. Setting fires, animal cruelty, and lying are traits many juveniles exhibit who fall inside the criteria for a disturbed mind. Was the fire in the barn of Mrs. Churchill and others near Lizzie's home on 2nd Street, shortly after the murders, the beginning of her need to quench the desire for elevated stimulation? Certainly, her disregard for her sister's pain never entered her mind. Repeatedly, she lashes out at Emma when things don't go her way, never once feeling empathy for the trials her sister is also going through. Lizzie Borden will continue to fascinate us. The, to peek behind the curtain of minds, who dare to do the unthinkable as a voyeuristic thrill for the rest of us who remain safely closeted within the walls of normalcy. That they get away with it may cause us periodic nightmares and the need to take a second look at the people next door. The fallout of the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden went far beyond the walls of 92 Second Street. The Swansea deal put together by John Morris and Andrew Borden was to have favorable, favorably impacted the lives of dozens of their relatives. Gone now was the dream of a major horse and cattle enterprise, years in the making. Abby's relatives mourned her loss, while Andrew's business endeavors teetered for a time. The police and attorneys sucked into her, vo sucked into her vortex, sacrificed their professional and family time on her behalf. The reach of her actions may never be totally contemplated. Bridget Sullivan moved to Anaconda, Montana, and married John Sullivan, no relation, in 1905. She died there on March 25, 1948. She bore no children. She, she, I'm sorry. She, she, she bore no children, and left this world without revealing her secrets about what she saw that day, August 4, 1992. Where she was between that year and her marriage in 1905 is a mystery. Rumors say she returned to Ireland and helped her family pay for a farm. The source of the money to do so has been theorized to no avail. Many in 1892, close to her, were in a position to help financially, including Lizzie, 
Emma and John Morse. John Whittaker Morse died in 1912 in Hastings, Iowa. He returned there after the trial and picked up where he had left off. His dreams of a large cattle business in Fall River dashed to pieces. Hosea Knowlton, Lizzie's trial prosecutor, who suffered greatly throughout her many legal dealings, died at his summer home on December 19, 1902 in Marion, Massachusetts. He had enjoyed the new estate for only two summers before his death. It is reported his ashes were scattered in the waters behind his home. A sobering thought. Did the plot to kill Abby and Andrew Borden begin in April when Lizzie first learned of the deed transfer? The poison was stolen from the barn in May after Lizzie insisted on a green paint color. She may have pushed to have the house painted. Did she deliberately brush up against the wet paint to ruin the dress, giving her an excuse to later burn it? With rumors and and movies and other books coming out shortly based loosely on her life, it is evident the fascination with Lizzie Borden will likely never die. At the, right, at the writing of this book, Fall River is gearing up for the 125th anniversary of the murders in 2017. Salem has its witches, and Fall River has Lizzie Borden, a woman with her face pressed up against the window of a world she could not enter. Author Rebecca F. Pittman. The Haunting The Lizzie Borden B&B Museum Hauntings after spending the night in some of the most haunted venues in America, I have noticed one thing. Each house or hotel has its own atmosphere. You can feel it the minute you walk in the door. It isn't something that can be captured with a tape recorder or EMF reader. Not even something that moves a planchette across an ancient board. It's a presence. Without fail, each venue owner I've interviewed has mentioned this, this presence, the feeling of someone always watching. You will feel it. Turn quickly only to find you're alone in that darkened hallway. Other hauntings are more overt. While researching the Myrtles Plantation in St. Francisville, Louisiana, I watched my earrings move the length of a mantle and saw my blanket jerk from the bed by an unseen hand. At the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, I've had pipe tobacco smoke blown into my face, a four-inch square burned into my bare shoulder, which, by the way, disappeared four hours later, and my watch halted at 1.30 a.m. each morning. By far, the happenings at Lent Mansion in St. Louis, Missouri, rattled me the most. My bed, on, <clears throat> my bed in the third floor attic was kicked, and something sat on my feet. A chandelier played light games with me, and I heard the sound of gunshots and a large dog barking outside my room on the second floor, unnerving, as this home is renowned for three suicides by gunshot and one bullet taking the life of a dog. When entering the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast Museum, we are first struck with awe. The house is remarkably frozen in time. It is real. You can see the sitting room and black sofa, and the location where Andrew Borden was murdered. The minute you cross the front door threshold, the owner has stayed true to the room's layouts and furnishings, going largely off crime scene photos and the secrets houses give up, in the way of hidden wall coverings, boards, and bricks. 92 Second Street is filled with, with memorabilia from the era and the murders, and it requires a couple of trips to take it all in. Leanne Wilbur, the manager, has done a fantastic job of finding authentic antiques and decor, allowing you to step back in the fall, into the Fall River of 1892. But it is the house, but is the house haunted? Let's hear what people are saying. 
Danielle Caprell has been a tour guide at the Lizzie Borden House for five years. She is a history major in college and wants to teach. Danielle feels she and the others working there are part of the house now. Their pride in the home was obvious and well-deserved. I asked her about the paranormal activity in the house that, that witnessed two such brutal murders. I have experienced things, Danielle said. You hear footsteps quite often. It sounds like man's boots. My tours have heard the footsteps coming down the back stairs behind them that run next to Andrew Borden's bedroom. They will stop, look behind them, see no one, and ask me, Did you hear that? I smile and say, The footsteps? Oh, yeah. I think the best things happen in the daytime. When the house is locked, uh, when the house is locked and only the staff is downstairs, you can hear a door on the second floor go wham. When I just start working here, when I just started working here, I was cooking, and I was asked to go upstairs and change the bedding. As I was going up the front stairs, I heard a female voice behind me go, <clears throat> with a small cough. I thought it was my boss. There was no one there. I later wondered if it was Abby showing displeasure at my housekeeping ability. I always hear two people talking at the top of the front stairs, sometimes two females, and sometimes a male and a female. We hear children in the attic room known as the Knowlton Room. It may be the children who were drowned in the cellar next door in the Kelly House, which was once owned by Eliza Borden. Eliza named after her mother, and Holder may be the two kids whose voices and laughter we capture on EVPs. People staying in the room where Abby died report a strong male presence, and sometimes a strong female presence. The female gives off a caring, nurturing vibe. One man, who was sick and lying on the bed, felt a female hand on his forehead, as if caring for him. The male present seems upset. I don't know if it's John Morse, who slept in that room, or if it's Andrew. In the Andrew Jennings room on the third floor, the staff have seen large handprints on the bedspread, spread apart like a man is leaning on the spread, with his hands planted there. The activity in the house is interesting. It tends to be more active two weeks before the murder anniversary, or Halloween. We get people all over the world that just come to America to see this house. It's very humbling to know I get to work here every day, Daniel said. Why do you think Lizzie is, is still such a hot topic all these years, I asked her. It's still America's biggest unsolved murder, Daniel stated. If a man had done it, it may not be so, sensa it may not be so sensational. Daniel told of an occurrence when Lee and Wilbur, the manager, who was watching TV in the parlor, and at 3.30 in the morning, she sees a shadow moving up the front stairs, just outside the parlor door. At the same time, the entry chandelier blew out all the bulbs. People see a shadow man walking through the house all the time, like Mr. Borden is doing his final walk, Daniel reported. I saw a man at the top of the back stairs, and I thought it was Tim, our assistant manager. But then I realized it was a shadow form, and I jumped back. I hear his voice over the voice boxes and on my cell phone that I used to record my tours to go over them. I had just mentioned Mr. Borden being a good businessman, and we heard a deep throaty growl. The recorder on my phone picked it up. Tim heard a giggle from the back stairs, and no one was there. There are things that happen all the time. The daytime tours get just as much stuff happening as the nighttime tours. Sue Vickery is another tour guide at the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast in the museum. I have had voices speak in my ear. I feel Mr. Borden hit me in the back when I'm talking about him. 
during an overnight stay, I did, I did in the attic. The light suddenly went off, went off on that floor. It spooked me. So we came down the second floor just as we did. The lights in the attic came back on. The second floor lights went out. We go down the first floor, and the second floor lights come back on. It was as if someone is shooing you down the stairs by shutting the, you know, shutting the lights off. I picked up Abby's voice as she tells me Lizzie did it, and that John was no, not part of it, and that Bridget knew about it after the fact. She gets, she gets these statements by using dowsing rods and asking questions. I feel my grandmother is here watching out for me. Sue says she protects me. An older couple were sleeping in the Borden's bedroom, she continued, and the man had a sleep apnea apparatus on his face. He woke up to somebody tapping him on the forehead and whispering in his ear, Oh, you poor dear. His wife was turned on her side away from him asleep. Mr. Borden will mess with the security cameras, and once we tell him that they are there to take care of his house, he stops. We have mediums tell us that Abby is surprised so many people are still interested in her home. She told us she wants us to do a good job of cleaning. When I finished the tour in Bridget's room in the attic, I just, I had just said that Bridget had liked working here, when a medium in the group piped up and said, Oh no, she didn't. She was afraid of Lizzie. I wasn't sure about her until she interrupted me during my tour in the kitchen and told me my grandmother was there and described how she died and who was with her. It made me take her seriously. I was in the attic, putting out the towels in Bridget's room, and there was a big swirling black mist in front of the Jose and Alton room. It lasted a few minutes and then faded away. Tim was in the cellar, and I was alone up there. Sue is at peace working in the house. She feels her grandmother's presence with her every day. People write to me, the author, through Facebook and my ghostwritings newsletter at my RebeccaPittmanBooks.com site. Some send photos, such as the two shot back-to-back by Lynn Schumach in the sitting room. And the second, even though it has taken a second after the first one, there was a white mist in front of the fireplace. Many of the stories I received concerning paranormal activity at the Borden house revolve around black shadow people seen on the stairways, and especially in the hallway, outside the Borden's second floor bedroom. Andy Hovermeyer, Dayton, Ohio. My friend and I were spending the night in the Andrew and Abby Borden bedroom. You get to use the two bedrooms there. You get to use the two bedrooms there. Which is nice. My friend got the room that was once Abby's dressing room. The suite has its own bad- bathroom. I got up to use the bathroom around 1.25 in the morning. Just as I passed the door that leads to the second floor landing, I hear this scratching noise on the door. I opened it, and standing at the end of the hall, where a window is, is this tall, thin form of a man. It's funny that you, it's funny that you can sense that a black shadow has turned toward you. But I could. I could see it was wearing a long coat that came to his knees and that the cuffs on the sleeves were a little flared. It turned and walked up the stairs to the attic. I slammed the door, locked it, and bolted to to my friend's room where I spent the remainder of the night, holding on to her arm. Jeff Daniels, Lynn, Massachusetts. I was on one of their tours at the Lizzie Borden house. We were standing in the room where Abby died. I'm watching the guy talking was standing in the spot where the body was found and something kept flashing across the mirror behind him. I turned to see if anyone was taking pictures. No one was. It happened again. Only this time, the flash of the reflection broke into a dozen little green lights that flew across across the glass. The lady next to me saw them too. There wasn't anything going on to cause it. 
everyone was standing still. It was night. So it wasn't so it wasn't sunlight coming in. The shutters were closed anyway. Freaky. Debbie Layton, San Diego, California. Did a tour. Standing at the top of the stairs outside Lizzie's room. Hearing about people being able to see under the bed in the murder room. I'm last in line. Still standing on the second step to the top. I hear this sigh in my ear. I mean, a deep, sad sigh that felt like it moved my hair. Dumb, I know, but I, I swatted at it and freaked out. I jumped up the stairs and stood at the head of the group. One lady looked at me like I was rude and butting ahead. I'll never forget what it felt like. Mercedes Ramirez, Phoenix, Arizona. My boyfriend and I stayed the night at the Lizzie Borden house. It was fall, and we were also going to Salem for the madness there. He wanted the room where Abby Borden died. I wasn't real crazy about that. When we went into the room, I got nervous and asked him to, to ask if we could have a different room. They were booked solid. He teased me, said he was there if I needed him. Big thrill. And I was forced to stay there. We were getting ready for bed. I think it was 10.30 or so. I propped up in bed looking over the brochures for Salem when he says he has to go to the bathroom. It's out in the hallway, I told him. No way I'm staying in here alone. He sighed and left me there. He, he left the door of the room open and walked a few steps to the bathroom that used to be the old dress closet for Lizzie. I'm watching every corner. I kept looking out at the staircase, sure something was going to come up. Like two minutes later, my boyfriend comes bolting into the room, slams the door, and jumps into bed. He looked scared to death. For a few minutes, he wouldn't talk to me. When I finally got mad, he said he was sitting in the bathroom, and the shadow comes out of the shower and stands in front of the mirror over the sink. He said he could make out a big wide skirt that, that went to the floor and puffy sleeves and her hair was piled up. There was a smell too that appeared when she did. Something he said smelled unpleasant. Kind of musky like. I've never seen him like that. He didn't sleep all night. He usually goes to the bathroom first thing in the morning. But this time he said he would stop at a gas station on the way to Salem. Marshall Clayton, Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm writing you because I think it would be fair to offer something from a skeptic. I think many of these haunted hospitality venues play off the paranormal and people's love of being scared. That being said, there is something about being in a home where two people were brutally murdered and having the rooms just, just as they were that day. The owners did an incredible job of reproducing the layout seen in the crime photos. The rooms are really nice, and in broad daylight, you sometimes forget you're looking at a sofa in a location where a man was hacked to death. I do confess to feeling a different energy in that room, and in the guest room upstairs, where Mrs. Borden died. Not some rattling chain type of experience, but one I feel is more impactful, a sense of sadness, of fear, of loss. There is a strong atmosphere in the house, but ghosts? I'll get back, if, you, if I ever see one, anywhere. John Alden Taylor? Peabody, Massachusetts. I come from an area synonymous with the witch trials. I have been subjected to folklore and spooky stuff since I was small. Some of the accused witches were from here. So I went to the Borden house not expecting much. It was just to see where the murders happened and to say I'd been there. My girlfriend and I took the tour, which I will say, you get your money's worth. No skimping on time. You get to see the whole house and ask lots of questions. I'm sure the guys have heard it all. One lady asked if Lizzie's presence was ever felt on the potty. I roll. 
We did have one thing happen in the attic that I can't explain. The guy had finished up there, and we were all trooping back down the stairs. There were about ten of us. Carrie and I were last. We went down about three steps when she grabs me. I turned to look at her, and she is pointing at a pillow that has magically ended up on the stair right behind her. We just walked down that step. There is no one else up there. She ran past me, nearly falling down the stairs. I wanted to tell the guide, but Carrie just wanted to leave. I heard there were cookies in the kitchen at the end of the tour. Thanks to her, I didn't get one. Mike Randall, Salt Lake City, Utah. I was in Boston on business, and I decided to drive the hour to Fall River to see the famous Lizzie Borden house. After seeing so many pictures of it, it's surreal to actually pull into the driveway. I've read a lot of the books on the case, and I found myself wishing Dr. Bowen's house and Mrs. Churchill's were still there. It's cool that the Kelly house is still there. The tour was really informative, and the lady that gave it was really good. She, she said she was going to college and was a history major. You could tell she loved her job there as a tour guide. I finished the tour and was walking back to my car. On a whim, I stepped to the window where I think Officer Hyde watched Lizzie that night of the murders. Come down, for, you know, come down in the dark for the second time. You can't see it very good. See in very good. I was straightening back up when this, I don't know how to put it, a face, I guess, sort of fluttered across the window from the inside. It wasn't a woman. It looked like a young man with a big mustache. I got a glimpse of a thin white collar and then dark shoulders. It was really fast. There were bars on the window there, but I could see it there. But I could see it distinctly behind them. It wasn't a real person walking around the cellar. It was gray and only his shoulders and head were floating <clears throat> up higher than the hill. I wondered if it could have been the ghost of one of the policemen there that, that day in the cellar. Okay, I'm not going to try to botch this last name. Shelly Disease Dick. Uh, disease Zick. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I want to just call D Z I E G Z I C. Let's just leave it at that. I already botched it horribly once. Mystic, Connecticut, is a seasoned Lizzie Borden historian with her own website, Lizzie Borden Warps and Warps and Wests dot com. In nineteen ninety eight she began working as a tour tour guide at the house under the former owner, Martha McGinn. Many have seen Mrs. McGinn's videos concerning the paranormal activity she had seen at the house, including the window on the second floor landing opening and shutting in rapid succession and a gray lady floating across the cellar floor. I had been working the night shift and had to check people out of the house for seeing things in the mirror and hearing noises, Shelley said. I have even had to escort guests to and from the bathroom. Then you have the pranksters. People on the street think it's fun to call out things and groan through the litter box on the front door. And of course, a guest may play a prank on someone. Employees never do, however. It would be an insurance risk. While I believe people come into haunted houses predisposed to being terrorized, I still have to admit there is a creepiness to being in the Borden house alone, which I have been for many hours. Sometimes I think I hear footsteps overhead when no one is there. Sometimes I think I hear voices at the top of the stairs, which cease when I go to the bottom of the stairs. Once or twice, I have felt the chill or smell the scent of perfume, which hangs briefly in the air, all when the house is empty. One evening, while alone, I felt someone cold behind my chair in the dining room, then a sigh. My mind rationalized most of this, but there was always a tiny margin of wondering 
Is there something there? Shelley went on to mention the many seances held in the house. While many are dubious, brought in by many professed psychics, a few stand out as authentic. One such occasion involved a woman who had traveled from England to see the house. She gave her impression of her presence, an old man standing in the driveway who had a message. She described the man in his age. On most mediums channel Lizzie, this lady was describing Southern Miller, an old friend and neighbor of Andrew Borden. I was somewhat impressed by this. She gave us a message from the old man. He told her to tell me that the repair job on the street out front of the house was not done properly. Miller was a carpenter and house builder. He actually built the Borden house. She could not have known about the repair work two weeks prior. The same evening, two motion detectors went off. I am a historian, Shelley stated, but I guess to steal from the great Edith Wharton, I do not believe in ghosts, but I am afraid of them. Colleen Johnson, a tour guide at the Lizzie Borden B&B and Museum. On the first day I worked at the house in 2006, I was giving a, a practice tour to the guide who was training me, and I used the word cheap to describe Andrew several times. Later, while following the tour she was giving, the tour guide used the word frugal in the same room. Each time she did, I began to cough and felt as if I couldn't breathe. The final time, I literally felt a hand on my throat. On occasion, when sleeping in Bridget's room, I will hear footsteps coming up the stairs when I'm alone in the house. Those stairs are carpeted now, but they weren't in the Borden's time, and the steps I hear are of boots on wooden stairs. I, I have stood looking down the stairs as I've heard these sounds, and no one's there. Angel Brigham, Dallas, Texas. My mom and I did the tour in 2015. I wanted to spend the night, but they were booked. The tour was really good, longer than I expected. I was enjoying it and really looking over all the furniture and stuff. There's lots to see there. When I hear a sobbing sound next to the room, they said was the dress closet. It's a bathroom now for some of the bedrooms on the second floor. I mentioned it to the tour guide, and he said he didn't hear anything. There were five people on the tour, and they looked at me like I was nuts. I stood there a minute, not wanting to go into the room where everybody went, because it's where Mrs. Borden's body was. I hear the sobbing again. It's really sad, like heart-wrenching stuff. It was right next to me, not on the other side of the bathroom door. I moved away from it, and it got louder. My mom was in the room with the others, and I motioned for her to come out and landing. She did, looking miffed. I was making her miss the tour. I asked if she heard the sobbing, which was still going on. She said she didn't hear anything. Now I'm freaking out. When the tour came out and went into, into Lizzie's room, I went downstairs and waited in the parlor. It really got to me. I felt sad the rest of the day. Darren Hutchinson. In October 2011, my wife and I spent the night there and had a few things happen to us. My wife felt nauseous from the moment we stepped into the house, and the unexplained feeling did not go away until we left the following day. On the evening of our stay, they gave us a tour of the house explaining what happened in each room. A couple of things occurred overnight. While, standing, well, while starting to fall asleep in the Andrew Borden room, where my wife and I stayed, I had the feeling of a hand pressing against the middle of my back, which was turned toward the bedroom door. It kept me awake for a little while, and I was somewhat afraid to turn over in case I might see something. Eventually, I did fall asleep, because I was so tired from our drive through that day, but was awoken during the night by a commotion in the adjoining room 
followed by the sound of someone running down the stairs. We didn't get up to see what was going on at the time, but found out the following morning from one of the other guests in the room, next to ours, a paranormal investigator, had freaked out during the night because he said the covers had lifted off, off of him and then he bolted out of the John V. Morris room where Abby died and down the stairs. He later made his way back upstairs but would not go back into this room. Instead, he asked the guest in Lizzie's room if he could sleep on the couch, which he did. There was a strong atmosphere in the Borden house. Our knowledge of what occurred there certainly plays a part. And yet there was a feeling as you walked through the, walked the floors that Lizzie, Emma, Bridget, Andrew, and Abby walked that you're not alone. For those of you who have not visited this amazing venue, may I highly recommend it. The owners have done an incredible job of recreating the actual environment of August 4th, 1892. The doors, woodwork, and some of the hardware are original to the home. Every detail is, every detail is completely gone over. The rooms are beautiful. And the breakfast, first class, shout out to Tim Reyes. Perhaps you'll come away with a ghost story of your own, the author. The interviews. There are amazing people who have spent copious hours involved in one aspect or another concerning the Lizzie Borden murder mystery. Whether penning a book or running a video, offering a website, a blog, performing on stage, or pro-offing a museum. The wealth of information they offer is a true gift to all of us who can't get enough of this case. Some of these people took time to share their knowledge with me along with photos pertaining to the crime and the people involved with it. Everyone I spoke with in Massachusetts opened their doors to me and went out of their way to help me gather the information I needed. While I have listed them in the acknowledgments, I want to offer you a closer look at the major players in the saga of Lizzie Borden. The Fall River Historical Society. The Fall River Historical Society is located at 451 Rock Street in Fall River, Massachusetts, only minutes from Lizzie Borden's house and Maple Croft. Michael Martins and Dennis Bennett are the curators there, and along with the amazing staff, they lovingly care for the history that made Fall River great and infamous. The museum houses the largest collection of Lizzie Borden memorabilia, both from her personal life and from the murder trials. The famous handleless hatchet is on display there, along with other artifacts from the murders. It is only a small part of a mansion crammed full of beautiful furnishings, art, and historical artifacts. It is also a must-see. I asked Dennis, Dennis Bennett, co-author of Parallel Lives, Social History of Lizzie A. Borden and her, and her Fall River, and curator of the museum, some questions. One, what is your favorite piece in the Rock Street Mansion that houses the Fall River Historical Society, and why? There are so many wonderful things in the collection that it's tough to pick one. One of my favorites, though, is a sampler in silk thread done by Delana Borden, while a student at Mary Walsh's Female Academy. If Michael could own one piece in this house, it would be the John Cotton portrait by Sanford Mason, a Rhode Island painter who painted it in the, who painted it in the 1820s and 30s. What item in the Lizzie collection captures your interest the most and why? In the Lizzie collection, we think the prison letters, no doubt. They present a totally different side of her character than has ever been supposed and are the first examples of personal primary source material dealing with her imprisonment. Three, if you could ask Lizzie one question, what would it be? I would hope that it would be a civil conversation and not an inquisition. Michael would like to ask her about her dogs, seeing 
That's how he also has a Boston Terrier. He also has Boston Terriers. What annual event put on by the FRHS is your favorite, and what new event would you like to offer? There are so many annual events that are each appealing for different reasons. Not much of an answer, huh? Number five, how long did Parallel Lives take to research and write? Besides the prestigious Curtis Review, what are you most proud of regarding the book? Parallel Lives took 10 years to research and write. A look at the acknowledgement shows how many great people were forthcoming with their assistance and information. And this book had to be completed along with all the other tasks at hand, running a museum, curating a collection, decorating for phenomenal holiday open house, running a seasonal tea room, buying for and running a museum shop, maintaining a library and research center, planning events, etc. There are a lot of hats here. In retrospect, we wonder how we ever had a chance to write the book. The Kirkus Star review was a total surprise, but we've never, excuse me, <clears throat> have ever anticipated being named Kirkus's best 20, 2012 list. The thing that I am personally proud of is that finally Lizzie's life as a woman is told, placing her against the backdrop of her times and finally putting her story in perspective. Six, are there any new books coming out? There are a few books on the horizon, but nothing in the immediate future. But keep in touch. You never know what will come along. My sincere thanks to Dennis Benet for taking the time to answer my questions. After looking at his list of duties, I felt a little guilty. He and Michael Martins offered their collective 60 years of experience to every author who comes to tap on their door. They are amazingly generous. If you haven't read Parallel Lives, I highly recommend it to you to do so. You can find information for it at www.lizzieborden.parallellives.com. For information on the Fall River Historical Society, including the upcoming events, go to www.fallriverhistorical.org or www.lizzieborden.org. The website and blogs. Shelly, let's see, here we go. Lizzie Borden, Warps and Whips. One, what is your name and what occasion is your interest in the Lizzie Borden saga? Back to Shelly. I'm just going to leave it to Shelly. We're not going to try that last name. <laughs> I am from Maryland originally and lived there until I was 21. I had heard of Lizzie Borden only in the context of the 40 Little Wax Dirty Diddy. The 40 Little Wax Diddy. We used to jump rope to it. I moved to New England in 1972 and lived on Aqueduct Island during my husband's Navy years. We would shop at Fall River Knitting Mills and visit the city often, but I still was not particularly interested in Lizzie. It was not until 1991 when I saw Legend of Lizzie Borden on TV while ironing one Sunday afternoon that I became obsessed with the case. I raced up to Fall River the next day to visit the Historical Society, only to find they are closed on Mondays. On Tuesday, the curator Florence Brigham opened the door of the Historical Society and filled me in on the Borden case. The timing was great because the next year was the Borden Centennial, and I attended the week-long seminar every day in costume and was the first to walk through the Maple, to walk through Maple Crop when it opened to the public on August 4th. I formed a group called the Second Street Irregulars in 1993, mostly composed of people I had met at the 1992 conference, and the group is still going strong. We usually meet at the Second Street House in the spring, as we did this year, to discuss and investigate the case. I also began a theatrical group called the Pair Essential Players, 
which, up until this year, performed at the Murder House on August 4th and in, and in area board-related venues. In 1998, I went to work for the McGinn family, who owned 2nd Street and wrote and directed the annual August 4th production and worked as a night tour guide and innkeeper from 1998 to 2016. In 2007, I created a blog site called Lizzie Borden, Warps and Whiffs to honor the textile heritage of the city and to put out truthful research on the case after finding so many errors in published work and television documentaries. In 2014, I published The History of Oak Grove, which focuses on the cemetery history of all the Borden-related people buried there. There are more Lizzie projects in the works. 2. When did you first create your forum, and what did you envision for it? Let's see. Let's see. Do you pose it? Do you pose it where you see Lizzie guilty or more? Lizzie Borden, Warps and Wefts was launched. Okay, Lizzie Borden, Warps and Wefts was launched in 2007 as a place for people to read, free of charge. My research, see photos of Fall River, the murder house, and Lizzie-related material. It was created to counteract so so much total falsehood, exaggeration, and misinformation on the internet. It also provided readers an avenue to comment or contribute information. Warps and Wefts is still going strong. Both guilty and innocent platforms are explored. Mostly the site details, deals, and facts. Three. If you could ask Lizzie one question, what would it be? My inclination over years of study of this case is to lean on the side of the guilty verdict. I also maintain there is some missing information we are not privy to surrounding the motive, and that we may never find out those missing bits which lit fuse on that Thursday morning, so my question to Lizzie would be, why? 4. How do you account for the ongoing fascination with the Borden murder case? What keeps people interested after 124 years? After lecturing to probably several thousand people on the topic, both as a house guide and a real lecturer, I have made note of the reaction to the Borden case by the general public in order of continuing interest. I would say that Lizzie kept keeps them coming back for more because 1. or A. It's a woman accused. B. It's insolvable. C. It's a hatchet used by a woman in a brutal, bloody, and unusual crime. D. The woman was acquitted despite damning evidence. E. The murder house is still intact and one might stay overnight since 1996. F. There has been a huge paranormal interest in the murder house since 2005. G. Both parents were murdered with the child accused of the murder. H. Nobody else was ever brought to justice for the murders. I. Lizzie never confessed and stayed in the city, shunned by old friends. 5. Do you feel there will be new information forthcoming in the future that could impact the impression of the public concerning this case? Having been present during a few discoveries, I cannot help but hope there is more out there about the Borden case, yet to be made public. It would be great to see the Robinson Papers. I believe there may well be letters which are kept private in the hands of people in the city which might shed light on Lizzie. The release of the Knowlton papers and, par and Parallel Wives gave valuable insight. No individual is one-dimensional. I think Lizzie was a very complex person, both capable of murder and also a loyal and sweet old lady who could be kind to animals. I believe that there is something yet unseen which would support a guilty Lizzie rather than an innocent one. I hope I live long enough to see it. I'll check out Shelley's various sites. www.perresentialproductions.org -E 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 That's Perry Central.
Productions.org. Uh, www.lizzyboardandwarpsandwebs.com, www.secondstreetirregulars.com, and www.friendsofoakgrovecemetery.org. Faye Musselman, www.faymusselman, Famous, P H A Y E M U S S, at WordPress.com. Tattered Fabric, Fall Rivers, Lizzie Borden blog. One, what is your name and what occasion you're in it, your, your interest in the Lizzie Borden saga? My name is Faye Musselman. In 1969, when I was pregnant with my son, I used to take long walks to the library and one day cited Victoria Lincoln's book, A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight. The book jacket had a lace fan with a hatchet superimposed. I checked it out and read it, read it cover to cover that day. I went back the next day and asked, what else you got? I was hooked. Within seven years, I was making twice annual trips to Fall River and meeting some people who actually knew Lizzie through the graces of the Historical Society curator Emeritus, Florence Brigham. Two, when did you first create your forum and what did you envision for it? Do you pose... Do you posit whether you see Lizzie guilty or not? July of 2007. Serious research, humorous musings, theoretical postulating, interesting images, and a splash of Fall River history. It's no mystery. Oscom's razor stuff. She wanted money, Daddy had it. She got it. Short answer, yes, I posited that she was guilty. 4. If you could ask Lizzie one question, what would it be? How did you like the Roman Colosseum? No, seriously. I would ask her what she did with the hatchet, because I don't believe it was ever found. 5. How do you account for the ongoing fascination with the Borden murder case? What keeps people interested after 124 years? This case is not so much a whodunit, as it is a masterly real life. How done it? Classic solved and unsolved crimes always have a mass appeal. This one, framed in the Victorian era, is born in an era when so many cases were born. But this one is a pip. It has it all. The virginal spinster, the somewhat miserly father, the dreaded stepmother, the yearning for independence but stuck without a financial means or skill sets to achieve it, the mysterious uncle, the name Borden, and his social cachet. The, decon- the, the dictomy of the have and have nots. The middle workers versus the upper class who won't or otherwise control most everything. Now add to it the missing murder weapon, a 10 to 15 minute window between the second murder and the shout out. Disbelief that a bored female could do such a thing, the hushed and humble society playing out against the newspapers coming of age with cross-country tentacles able to publish in 24-hour news cycles, and mostly the oddity of Lizzie herself. The case has legs. It has transcended the generations, and now her persona has emerged into a pulp culture icon as a one-dimensional psychopath wielding a bloody axe. She's our Jack the Ripper, but 15 and in a dress with a comely grin on her face. 6. Do you feel there will be a new, there will be new information forthcoming in the future that could impact the impression of the public concerning this case? There already has been. It's a massive book, Parallel Lives, A Social History of Lizzie A. Borden and Her Fall, and her fall River published by Fall River Historical Society. Previously, we knew about her first 33 years. For the first time, we learned details of not only the first, but the entire second half of her life. It reveals a woman of depth and feelings and kindness, 
and years of sadness and depression. But as much as that content thrills case purists, it doesn't sell on today's TV's true, true, true case drama presentations. It's not sexy enough. So we are fed misinformed information or outrageous exploding rock candy inside the mouth of the mind of, of Christina, Christina Ricci <laughs> portrayal. I think Lizzie acted alone and took it to her grave. More letters and photographs will come out, which might alter that savage and raising persona into a more formidable matron of the jazz age and holding on to the social deportment of an Edwardian society. Viewing my blog is without registration or cost, but I also post Lizzie Borden collectibles there for sale. I soon will be listing more. Again, www.phayemuss at wordpress.com. Let's see how far we got. I'll come back on this and see. All right, I'm going to stop there, you guys, because it just it, it just continues on with these different um, websites. And if you guys want to get this book, fantastic. It's by Rebecca F. Pittman, and uh, it's the it's the uh, history and haunting of Lizzie Borden. It was a great book. I enjoyed it. A lot of detail. She goes into uh, about Lizzie's life. I'm going to turn this thing off. All right, let me shut down here. Okay. Uh, she goes into a lot of great detail about Lizzie's life and times, and I think you'll find it fascinating. But uh, it was an interesting read. It took us 20 days to, to get through it, and I'm glad we did. And, uh, again, starting next week, next Sunday, we will uh, be back at our usual 6.30 time, and we're going to start with the uh, Haunted Antiques book by Anna Maria Manolo. All right? Tomorrow now uh, is a tape show. I taped it last week with uh, archaeologist Mark Ollie. Mark Ollie has been in search of crystal skulls. It's kind of like Indiana Jones, right? The crystal skulls. Well, he's been in search of crystal skulls for some time, and he did locate some. And so he's going to be, tell well, he was here telling me about it. Now he's going to share it with you. So that'll be tomorrow at uh, 6.30 p.m. Pacific on YouTube. Check Facebook for the listing. I already have it posted up on Facebook, so the link's up there already. But it's a, it, it's a pre-taped interview with Mark Ollie, and he'll be with us tomorrow, okay? I want to thank everybody for sticking with me with this book. You know, it, like I said, it, it was a long book, but we got through it. And as you can tell, there were some tongue-tied names, some stuff I couldn't pronounce, but tried to get through it without looking like a fool. But it's been an interesting story. Now, whether Lizzie's guilty or innocent, that's up to you, to, you know, to, to think about. You know, uh, there's a lot. There were a lot of circumstance. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence in this case, and uh, who knows? You know, a lot of fumbling by the police too. You know, there were mistakes made on on both sides, really. So, who knows? You know, I, I there's something we'll never know. I mean, obviously, you know, it's just conjecture now as to what actually happened. But I want to thank you all for coming and listening these 20 days. And hopefully you'll be here next Sunday to hear the beginning of the new book. And off we go with that one. But thank you so much. And I appreciate it. And if I did bobble anybody's names who involved with this book or anything like that, I apologize. Just like today, running into that woman's last name. Wow. Okay. And certain things. So I, I, I apologize to you. But thank you so much. And again, I'm going to be teaching a psychic development class to uh, next Saturday at 5 p.m. Pacific. Check out the California Haunts Meetup site for that. If you like what you hear today, if you, if you enjoyed it, and you, you like our other shows, and you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button. 
Um, if you're watching from YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. It's that little ghost down at the bottom right hand corner with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat on. Please do hit that subscribe button. And if you're watching from Twitter, you know, any other place, maybe wherever you can like what we're doing, that would be great. Even TikTok, all right? But anyway, I want to say again, I want to thank you all. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And also, um, the other thing is, uh, you see that thing flashing at the bottom? The show is going on its third season. We're going to be starting our third season here very soon. And uh, I really appreciate each and every one of you for listening to us all these years. The numbers are definitely going up and stuff. But, uh, it all cut, you know, everything for California Haunts, we're, we're, we don't take money to investigate. So when we, when we drive to locations far away or we do other stuff, it comes out of our pockets. You know, if we stay at all hotels to investigate or whatever, or if we have to stay at a hotel to go to your house to investigate, it all comes out of our pocket. So we, you know, but we do accept donations. And just like with this radio show, it's the same thing. I'm the owner of the, I'm the owner of California Haunts, so everything comes out of my pocket, even with the paranormal group. So if something breaks, you know, or something goes wrong, or even the regular bills, you know, I've got just like you, I've got internet bills and phone bills and everything else related to this to, to all this that I have to have. If you could help us out a little bit to keep the show on the air and keep these great guests coming, that would be great. PayPal.me at California Haunts or uh, Venmo within California Haunts. I'd really appreciate it because it would help me out a lot too. You know, this is all I do. All right. Anyway, I really appreciate it, and I will see you. T- well, I'll see you on TV tomorrow. I will be on the chat tomorrow at 6:30, even though I won't be live on screen. I will be on the chat tomorrow at 6:30. So if you have any questions or anything about about the guest or anything, I'll be there. I, I will be available, you know, on the chat. But uh, we'll see you tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. at YouTube for Mark Ollie. Have a good night.